Good. Well, if you're new to us, you'll find it helpful to um, have a look at the, the outline on the inside of the white bulletin, uh, which gives you a sense of where we're going in the next few minutes. <coughs> I'm going to start by asking for God's help. Heavenly Father, your word is a balm for the broken, ballast for the bewildered, and bread for the hungry. So may your word come with the transforming healing power of your spirit this morning into the lives of each person here. And we ask it for Christ's sake. Amen. Ingmar Bergman was a Swedish playwright and film director. He's considered by the experts to be one of the most influential film directors of all time. He wasn't a Christian, but he was the son of a priest. And part of the secret of his success was his, his insight into man's search for spiritual truth. And uh, on one occasion, he made this very astute comment. Quote, When God dies in the churches, the Christians chatter. He was saying that the way you can tell whether a church is alive or dead uh, is not by the size of the congregation, uh, it's not by how impressive the church building is, not even by the praying. Now, according to him, the sign of a dead church is that its members have nothing significant to talk about. So, when they gather for coffee after the service, all they can do is chatter about trivia. Now, that might be a little harsh, but uh, is he entirely mistaken? I don't think so. That doesn't mean that it's wrong for us to talk about non-spiritual things over coffee. Of course not. But on the other hand, if at the end of the only hour in the week when Christians have met with God in the community of God's people, if the conversation is always feather-light, well, that might be a warning sign that God is no longer with them. Now, as I think you know, that is the issue that we're trying to address in our current series. Uh, For those of you who are new to us, we're we're trying to blow away the fog that has obscured the majesty of God for many Christians so that they no longer have any really clear idea what God is actually like, with the result that most of the time they live as if God isn't real. And one of the consequences of this is that it's taken the vitality out of Christian worship. Uh, We saw this last week, didn't we, when we spoke about the two extremes that we can see on the Christian scene today. So on the one hand, uh, there are lots of churches where the accent is on emotional experience with minimal biblical content, And then on the other hand, there are churches where the the emphasis is all on the Bible teaching, but where any kind of emotional response is viewed with intense suspicion. 
And uh, at both of those extremes, the worship is lacking something vital. So with that in mind, the first thing that struck me in our passage this morning is the very last verse. Exodus 34 verse 8 where we read, Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. Now this morning in our series we're thinking about uh, the glory of God. What does the Bible say about the glory of God? And uh, here in Exodus 33 and 34, something about his encounter with God moves Moses to sincere, heartfelt humble worship. And we know that it's got something to do with God's glory. What is it? What is the connection in our passage between the glory of God and the worship of Moses, the worship by Moses? Now glory, I guess, is a word that we have become rather uncomfortable with uh, in matters of religion. I think we're still probably quite happy to use it in ordinary everyday contexts. Uh, For example, we might use it to describe the weather. Uh, Say, what glorious weather it is today, if you like bird winds. Uh, Or we might use it to describe Roger Federer's remarkable ability with a tennis racket. Uh, What a glorious backhand. So, although the word glory in itself sounds a little bit old-fashioned, as soon as somebody says something like that to you, you've at least got some idea what they mean. But whenever the word glory is used in church, many people, I think, automatically assume that we're dealing with religious jargon and switch off. But the word glory is not religious jargon. Uh, The Westminster Shorter Catechism has been accepted as a an accurate and biblical statement on the truths of the Christian faith for more than 300 years. The very first sentence in that catechism goes like this. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. What that's saying is that the main reason that you and I exist, the reason God has given us life, is to glorify him. And so it's obviously pretty important, isn't it, that we know what this word glory means, especially when we're talking about the glory of God. Now, whenever the Bible is trying to teach us a really important idea, uh, it sometimes does that by way of a contrast. And we've got a marvellous example of that in our passage this morning, because according to Exodus... There are two types of glory available to men and women. Uh, So you'll see on the outline that we're going to start by considering the glory that men want and then we're going to look at the glory that matters. And then lastly we're going to find out how to get it. So firstly then, the glory men want. Chapter 33 Verses 1 to 3. Uh, Those of you who've read the book of Exodus, I think, probably know the context, but the 
The context here is that the relationship that God had offered to Israel to be his own special people is on the point of collapse. Back in chapter 20, God had described the lifestyle that he demands from his special people. You remember that God had rescued them from slavery in Egypt, something they could never have done for themselves. And then he brought them into a unique covenant relationship, giving them marvellous promises of a land of their own and a promise that he would dwell with them. And in return, he expects them to prove their love for him by their obedience. That was what the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 were all about. But of course Israel have ignored the commandments in the most blatant manner by worshipping the golden calf. And now as chapter 33 begins, the atmosphere is electric. We're wondering, is this going to be the end of the road for Israel? Will God destroy them? Will God turn away from them and start all over again with someone else? If we're reading Exodus carefully, those are the kind of questions that come into our mind at the beginning of chapter 33. Given that background, uh, the opening verses of chapter 33 are totally unexpected. Because instead of sending a plague or enemies to attack them, God gives Moses a surprising command. Come with me to verse 1. God says, leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt. Go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants, and I will send an angel before you and drive out the marvellous tribes mentioned there. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you. Now think about that. What God is basically saying is I'm going to give you unbelievable political power driving out the nations. I'm going to give you tremendous economic prosperity a land flowing with milk and honey. You're going to have everything you think you really need but I won't be with you. You're on your own. Now friends, can I say we do need to think very carefully about this. Because what God is essentially saying there is I am going to give you the religion that you thought you wanted when you bowed down to that golden calf. Now there are countless people today who would say that is a dream religion. It's the kind of glory they want God to give them. Because many people today want a silent God who makes no demands and who would never in a million years challenge their disobedient lifestyle choices. There are multitudes of people in churches today who think about God on precisely that level. I was thinking personally that I think I've now lost count 
of the number of times that somebody has come to me to tell me uh, about a decision that they've made that I'm absolutely certain they know is against the plain teaching of Holy Scripture. And they will often begin by saying, "Uh, Simon, after much prayer, this is what I've decided to do. As if somehow that prayer has secured God's blessing for what in truth is rebellion and disobedience. The truth, of course, is that it it hasn't secured God's blessing. And actually, they haven't been praying either, at least not in the way that the Bible understands prayer. Because without realising it, what they've actually been doing is dancing round a golden calf. We started uh, this series with a quotation from a book by David Wells, and as I've been thinking about what it is that causes so many Christians to treat God like this, I've again found Dr. Wells' book to be extremely helpful. Won't you please turn to the back of the pink question sheet? This is what Dr. Wells says. Quote, We have turned to a God we can use rather than to a God we must obey. We've turned to a God who will fulfil our needs rather than to a God before whom we must surrender our rights to ourselves. He is a God for us, for our satisfaction, not because we've learned to think of him this way through Christ, but because we've learned to think of him this way through the marketplace. In the marketplace... Everything is for us, for our pleasure, for our satisfaction, and we've come to assume it must be so in the church as well. Is that the bullseye? I rather think it is. And of course, you see, when people treat God as if he was some kind of cosmic vending machine, uh, dispensing favours on demand... Well, the inevitable consequence is God is not with them. Just like Israel in verse 3, they don't enjoy the blessing of God's presence. Now, friends, that is the kind of glory that Israel wanted from the golden calf. It almost destroyed them. But mercifully, uh, this passage also introduces us to another type of glory, and I've called this the glory that matters. And here we're in verses 12 to 23. Now Moses uh, knows that if God gives them all of this marvellous success, victory over their enemies, a land flowing with milk and honey, if he gives them all that but doesn't go with them, That is an astonishingly bad deal. And so verse 15, can we all see verse 15? Then Moses said to God, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you're pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth. And then in verse 18, 
he prays what sounds to us like a really rather odd prayer. Now show me your glory. Whatever does Moses mean? Well, the answer, of course, concerns the the real meaning of the word glory in the Bible. Um, The word in the original is actually almost impossible to capture by a single word in English. Uh, In some contexts, it refers to God's presence. Uh, That's the idea, I think, in verse 15. Or it can be used to refer to God's face or his appearance or his name. But I want to suggest this morning that the English word that gets closest to the true meaning of the original is the word matter. Now, whenever you and I use this word matter today, we've got basically two ideas going on in our minds. On the one hand, we might think about the substance of something uh, in the sense that it has mass or or matter or, or weight. Now, of course, that's immensely significant for us in our series, isn't it? Because weight is the opposite of weightlessness. And that's obviously one of the ideas that comes into our minds when we hear the word matter today. But it also has a second meaning. Uh, So, for example, it was Alice's birthday uh, yesterday. And I'm sure that at some point, uh, Michael would have turned to Alice and said something like this. You really matter to me. Uh, (laughs) Meaning... You are important to me. You are really significant in my life. Did you do that, brother? (laughs) The word glory combines those two ideas. Weight and significance. So when uh, Moses prays that God's presence will go with them, he means that the most important thing for him and for Israel is not what they can get out of God. Rather, it is that God's presence proves that Israel matters to God. You got that? That they are significant to him. And if God, you see, takes that away, it removes their entire identity, their whole reason for being. And Israel will be no different to anyone else. And the point is, you see, that human beings cannot live without glory. Maybe a fresh thought for you. But you see, isn't it true that we all want our lives to matter? And that drive actually lies behind behind all human behaviour. It's not a wrong thing. God has made us that way. He's made us to want to discover why we matter. Have you discovered that yet? But the Bible says, you see, there are two kinds of glory. There is worldly glory, which is destructive, and there is the glory of God, which shows us that we matter to the God of the universe. Let me try and illustrate that uh, in another way. 
The problem with worldly glory, you see, is that it invites people to value us for what they can get out of us. And I guess all of us in this room have experienced that at some point or other. But try thinking about it like this. Uh, Imagine that you're engaged to the person that you uh, have decided is the love of your life. And at the time of your engagement, you make a large and significant investment in the stock market. But very soon afterwards, the stock market crashes and suddenly your investment is worthless. Next time you see your fiancé, you you tell them uh, what's happened and they say, well, okay, in that case, the wedding's off. Now, how do you feel at that moment? I'll tell you precisely how you feel. You feel violated you realise that they only actually wanted you for what they could get out of you. They didn't want you for who you are. Now, as we've already seen, that is how many, many people think about God. And God doesn't like it any more than we do. But Moses' prayer in verse 18 is something different and something very special. You see, when Moses says to God... Now show me your glory. He's not asking for a benefit for his own personal gain or advantage. He's not praying for forgiveness or for strength or for wisdom. Those are brilliant things to pray for. It's just not what Moses is asking for here. Because in verse 18, Moses is basically saying, Lord, show me the thing that is most significant about you. The thing that matters most about you. Can you see how very radically different that is to most of our, frankly, self-centred praying? Because Moses is saying, look, I want fellowship with you, God, just for who you are, not because of what I can get out of you. So Moses' prayer is a terrific prayer. I want to encourage us all to pray it. But there's a problem. And the problem is in verse 20. But, said the Lord, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. Now the problem is this, that although you and I were made for the glory of God, the truth is that a full-on experience of God's glory would destroy us. Now why is that? Well, the reason is because there's a fundamental difference in essence between the infinite, holy God and sinful human beings. If we were suddenly to find ourselves exposed to the full radiance of God's glory this morning, we would be consumed. A couple of years ago, there was some 
rather spectacular fires on the mountains behind our home in Tokai. And it took the firemen at least two weeks to put the fires out. Why? Well, the reason is that there is a huge difference in essence between fire and water. So if you've got lots and lots of fire, but only a little bit of water, what happens? I'll tell you what happens. (coughs) Steam. Yes? Well, you see, here Moses asks to experience the very thing that we're all made for, the glory of God. But God says, I'm sorry, the difference between us is so enormous, you can only see the back of my glory. And even then, you can only see that if I protect you with the back of my hand. So just as an aside, because it's not the main point. But next time your friends speak about God as if they can saunter into his presence with their hands in their pockets and ask for whatever they want whenever they feel like it, well, you can take them, can't you, to Exodus 33 and 34 and put them straight. So there are two types of glory. The glory men want that doesn't do them any good at all the glory that matters, the glory of God, the glory we were made for, but on our own we can't have it. So what on earth is to be done? How do we gain access? How do we experience this glory for which we were created in the first place? Well, that brings us to our third point in chapter 34, verses 5 to 8, which is not a very good title, but how to get it. When Moses uh, has asked God to show him his glory, God responds by saying, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And then in verses 6 and 7, the Lord explains what that goodness is. Verse 6, the Lord passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. So, at the heart of God's glory, there are two aspects of God's perfect goodness. I wonder if you pick them up. First, he shows his goodness by forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. That is God's mercy and compassion. The second, he also shows his goodness by not leaving the guilty unpunished. That is his justice. Both of those are aspects of God's goodness. You can't separate them. But of course, somebody will look at that and say, well, that doesn't make sense. It's impossible. It's a contradiction. But in the New Testament, when John is introducing what he wants to say about Jesus, he says this, the word became flesh, and made his dwelling among us. 
we have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Earlier this year, uh, we learned in our series in John's Gospel that whenever John talks about glory, he's always talking about the cross. And you see, what he's saying is that when Jesus was hanging up there on the cross, John saw the perfect visual aid for understanding the glory of God. He understood that God had laid all of our wickedness and rebellion and sin on Jesus, punishing him instead of us. God could have turned his face away from us, taken his presence away from us. But you see, when Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus knew perfectly well. God had taken his presence away from him, turned his face away from him. In other words, listen to this, Jesus was experiencing what it felt like not to matter to God. And so when he looks at the cross, John understands what so many people today have forgotten, that we do matter to God. And that's the glory that all of us need. And it's available to everybody who stops pursuing that worldly glory that's so destructive and puts their trust in Christ. And if you haven't yet done that, I want to encourage you to do it this morning. But for those of us who've been on the Christian road for a while, and I guess that's most of us, I want to encourage you to think about Moses in our passage. Because the Lord gives Moses a taste of his glory, Moses responds by bowing down at once in worship. Does that describe you? I wonder. I've no doubt that when you were converted, you glimpsed the glory of God for the first time, something about the glory of God, and you knew for a certainty in that moment you matter to God. And in your heart at least, I am certain you bowed down in worship. Am I right? But today... Does the glory of God grip you in the same way this morning that it did then? I think that's a very real challenge for every Christian. As we close, I want to invite you please to turn to 2 Corinthians 3 on page 816. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, page 816. Just one verse, the last verse in the chapter. Verse 18. Now Paul, it's a fascinating passage this if you read Exodus 33 and 34. Paul has been saying that when Moses came down from the mountain from talking with God, his face was shining so brightly that he had to put a veil over it. And then Paul says, talking about Christians, verse 18, 
And we, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, what does that mean for us this morning in the light of what we've been talking about? It means you can pray Moses' prayer. Now, show me your glory. And, And God will answer that prayer when you fix your mind on the cross of the Lord Jesus. Because the promise in that verse in 2 Corinthians 3.18 is the Spirit will show you just how much you matter to God. And as you grasp just how wonderful that is, not only will you be reflecting God's glory out into the surrounding culture, but also like Moses, you too will bow down in worship. Let's pray. Lord, we we confess that so often we've been consumed by a desire for worldly glory. We ask for your forgiveness. Thank you for revealing to us this morning that that is a complete dead end. Grant to us a hunger to see your glory, the glory that matters, and to enjoy personal fellowship with you through faith in the finished work of Christ. And Father, as you give us a bigger vision of your glory, Move us in our hearts to heartfelt, sincere, passionate, humble worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.